Hello, uh, we are ready to begin if everyone would like to take a seat. Uh, my name's Jessie French, I'm the Deputy Creative Director of M Pavilion, and we're all gathered here for nothing. Um, um, I'd like to begin by just um, acknowledging the fact that um, we're gathered on the space of the Bunurong people and that they've been the traditional owners and custodians of the land um, and also acknowledge that um, Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded in this country. Um, some housekeeping to just start off the night. Um, I'll let you know that the, the best and, and kind of tied with the closest toilets that you can find are over at the Arts Centre. Um, there are some public toilets just over the hill, but they're not as nice. So um, <laughs> feel free to come and grab a, a drink as you go through the night. Um, I'm going to hand over to Craig Jeffrey, but I'd like to just thank him for being the one to organise tonight and kind of get, get this idea together, um, and also for the Australia India Institution for supporting it all and making it happen. All right, pass over. Thank you so much, Jesse. I would like to start by thanking uh, Jesse French, the Deputy Creative Director of the Naomi Milgram Foundation, and Robert Buckingham, the Creative Director, uh, Naomi Milgram, for her leadership and vision in organising the uh, conceiving of the M Pavilion and, and uh, superintending uh, events over the course of these few months. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Bijoy Jane, the architect of the M Pavilion, who's created this amazing space to think about nothing. And that's really what we're going to do over the next uh, uh, few hours. We've got quite a lot of time. Is we're, we're going to think about nothing. We're going to do nothing. And you're going to see nothing literally happen before your eyes. And that's uh, going to happen in part because we have a series of nothing specialists, uh, a, a superb array uh, I'm, not no, I'm not joking now, of extremely eminent researchers, thinkers, who we've gathered together, who, all of whom are from different disciplines. Um, so I'll just introduce them briefly. And I'll let, they'll introduce their work themselves, but I'll, I'll, I'll just let you know that we have Professor Hilary Charlesworth, who we'll hear from a moment, who um, most of you will know, an extremely eminent in, uh, international lawyer. We have Dr. Barry Manane, who's a professor at um, the University of Oxford in German. We have um, Dr. David McInnes, who, uh, who teaches uh, English literature at Melbourne University. We have Dr. Trent Brown, who works uh, with me at the Australia India Institute as a researcher. And we have uh, Dr. Morris uh, Toscano, who is both an astrophysicist and an education specialist. Uh, and what uh, we, we all, um, we, well, actually, it would be uh, fair to say that we literally have nothing in common. All of us are interested not just in, in nothing as a, a, a single idea, but, but also in how useful it is to think about nothing. And what's really interesting for us is three things. And first of all is the, the point that um, in lots of different disciplines, people are realizing that actually what looks like nothing is full of stuff. So physicists used to think that there was nothing going on in the vacuum. And suddenly there is actually there's loads happening in a vacuum. In my work with unemployed youth that I'll talk about later, people talk about themselves as doing nothing, but then you investigate it and you find that, that nothing is actually full of stuff, of ideas, of practices. Nothing, zero, in mathematics is incredibly important. India, by the way, invented the idea of zero. So zero actually turns out to be this really crucial thing. So what we're interested in part is, is that actually King Lear was wrong when he said that nothing comes of nothing. Something comes out of nothing. Nothing is incredibly productive, creative in itself. Things happen in the space of nothing. And what we mean by that from our different sort of perspectives will become clear over the next um, few minutes. The other thing that interests us is like, when you think about nothing, what is the something that's being referenced by nothing? So the people I hang out with in North India, when they talk about themselves as, you know, we're doing nothing, what is the something that they're referring to? So we're interested in sort of nothing as a sort of relational concept. What is the something that nothing references? And the third thing I think we're, we're all really interested is, in is in what context does nothing have value? Like when is nothing really important? Like think of mindfulness, emptying your mind, Buddhist traditions, you know. Think of ideas of kind of peace and stillness that are advertised in luxury holidays. They're, like, nothing is the goal, it has value. But in other contexts, nothing's associated with loss, with emptiness, with unemployment. So uh, 
so, that, so I think the question of nothing and, and value, when does nothing have value, when does it not have value, is really interesting. Think about things like financial institutions, bubbles, speculative bubbles, Ponzi schemes. It looks like nothing but there's something, but then some moment happens and that nothing actually is nothing. So without um, going on about it too much and anticipating what the substance of our conversations are going to be, let me just, before we start, just give you a little idea about the format of, of the next few hours. Um, what we'd like to do is, is um, over the next of about 25 minutes, three of us... Um, who've assembled to sort of give you provocations, I suppose, to think about nothing, are going to talk at the front. Um, that'll be uh, Hilary, David, and Morris. Uh, then we're going to open up and we're going to have a group discussion and encourage you to uh, in discuss yourselves um, with, the, with, with us um, up here, your ideas about nothing, why you're here, why you think nothing might be, might be uh, an interesting concept. Uh, ask questions of the, of, of the people who, who are presenting in front of you. Uh, then we'll break, and um, we're going to have some artistic events in relation to nothing that I won't say anything more about. I'll let Jesse, you introduce them when we get to that stage, just to keep, um, keep things uh, interesting. Then we'll reconvene, and we'll have another th three, four speakers uh, on the theme of nothing. We'll have another group discussion, then there'll be some other artistic events. So it's really a feast of nothing this evening. Um, drop in and out as, uh, you know, as, as you see fit. But without um, further ado, I'd like to pass over to Professor Hilary Charlesworth, who's going to start us off from, I think, a legal perspective, thinking about the issue of nothing. Is that right? Thanks very much, Craig, and thanks to M Pavilion for having us here this evening. Uh, and I join with Jesse in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land where we're meeting. Uh, this is quite hard to start off, I think, this conversation about nothing, and I'm sort of slightly appalled that a lawyer would be called on to straightaway dampen uh, and try to codify what we might mean by nothing. But I certainly, when we've had discussions about this as a group, I was very drawn to the idea that uh, the category of nothing, often the term nothing is usually a very dismissive, derisory term, uh, the idea of an absence, a lack or a void, but the idea that this could in fact be a very rich domain full of meaning and legal implication. And the more I thought about that in context of my own discipline, which is international law, uh, it really began, I began to see, it's the first time I'd really thought about it, that the idea of nothing, I think, really shapes international legal thinking. And I want to really use, we've been given a very strict time limit of eight minutes, precisely, and uh, I wanted to use my eight minutes of nothing to reflect, to really give two different examples of the way that the concept of nothing shapes, shapes legal thought. So I'm going to use two variants on nothing. One is um, no one and the other is no place. So the first then example of nothing I want to look at is the doctrine of terra nullius, the famous sort of legal doctrine meaning land belonging to no one. So this is a doctrine that's always taught in courses on international law. It's the category of territory, uh, which means that the land in question, you could, how, how do you acquire territory in international law? Well, a standard way is through conquest, uh, another way that you can acquire territory validly is through purchase. So this was done, for example, in parts of North America that were actually purchased, often for token sums of money, but they were purchased. But a third, uh, another way you can gain it actually is by accretion. That's actually when a river changes its course and you suddenly get more territory. But the fourth sort of standard way is one country can claim territory over land that's considered belonging to, to no one. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, of course, very relevant in Australia because this was always understood to be the basis by which Europeans came to have sovereignty here in Australia. 
And uh, this was absolutely the legal doctrine. It was certainly the legal doctrine that I learned as a student and it held legally until the Mabo decision, the High Court decision in 1992. So the idea was that Great Britain acquired Australia not by conquest, uh, not through purchase, not through accretion, but by occupying the land belonging to nobody and establishing government here. So on that analysis, the first Australians uh, were no one in law. Now, we do know from the historical record, of course, that Captain Cook, for example, was well aware that there was an Indigenous population. In fact, he and Joseph Banks, for example, uh, described and uh, to a certain extent admired uh, the Aboriginal population there. It's certainly well known. So uh, how is it possible then for it to be argued that this was a land belonging to no one? Well, it's very interesting going back, looking at the records, uh, the British uh, Foreign Office very much drew on the writings of a Swiss uh, jurisprudent, uh, Emmerich de Vattel, who said, well, how can you explain, how can you call people who are living on a land no one? And his doctrine, he said, well, uh, if a land is very sparsely populated, and if it seems that the people who, the sparse population, are doing nothing with the land, then it can be considered belonging to no one. And of course, the, the Europeans looked at what the Aboriginal population were doing and they didn't see any farming. They didn't see any recognisable farming. So the idea was, well, they're really squandering the land. They're just wandering over it. They're not doing anything real with it. So therefore, it can be considered land belonging to no one because they're not making proper use of it. And it's absolutely open to the God-fearing uh, people who have the capacity to farm and to own, who understand the concept of ownership of land. And this was the second idea while the uh, Aboriginal population considered no one, because they had no notion of ownership of land. There were certainly no titles officers. There were nothing to show that they understood the value of land. Now, of course, what we know is that that shows a tremendous uh, simplicity of vision about how ownership is established. But that was enough to enable the British to comfort themselves that they had validly acquired it, uh, uh, Australia, validly at international law. So, in terms of our subject, uh, Aboriginal people considered as living in a state of nature precisely because they hadn't appropriated the land as property. So staking out land was the test for civilization for emerging from the state of nature. And if the Aboriginal people didn't understand property in that way, uh, they were no one legally. So in this case, going back to the questions that Craig posed at the beginning, uh, the referent of no one then, the comparator, is uh, the civilized Europeans who had an obvious system of land owning. So in that sense, being no one legally has a very heavily moral element. It means that you have intrinsically less value than the people who have systems of property ownership. So what's striking now today, then just to bring this example to an end, is that although we have since Mabo that the doctrine of terra nullius has been officially repudiated as the basis uh, for uh, the acquisition of Australia, it nevertheless continues very, very profoundly to shape Australian images and I think attitudes to Aboriginal people. And uh, we can see that idea still very much permeating the native title system, which uh, was established really by the Mabo decision put into place there. Uh, so nothing has been very significant. The second brief example I want to give of the way that nothing shapes uh, international legal thinking uh, is through the concept of utopia, which of course means no place. So you'll no doubt be aware because last year we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the publication of Sir Thomas More's book, Utopia. And utopia means uh, no place in Greek. It's often been uh, mistranslated uh, really as meaning uh, a positive place, uh, as a place that, uh, an ideal place. But the, the actual Moore's idea of utopia simply meant no place, that it couldn't exist. Uh, so it's, it's now assumed to be better than contemporary society, but that wasn't, that wasn't its original meaning. 
But a critical aspect of utopias today is that they are an expression of some sort of desire. And utopias, in this sense, play a huge part in international legal thought. In fact, uh, it's often said that the whole idea that there might be a legal regime that governs relations between states uh, is in itself a utopian way of thinking. But if we think international law is a very utopian area of law, perhaps the most utopian corner of this utopian field is human rights law, a very complex set of normative standards contained in regional and international treaties covering issues as diverse as children's rights, rights to be free from torture, and rights to self-determination. Well, often uh, real lawyers uh, deride utopian thinking. So often, what's the referent for utopian thinking in law? Well, I think the referent is so-called real-world thinking. We often find that that's the contrast. You're a utopian or you're a real-world thinker. And uh, uh, this contrast of there's a tough real world where really, why are how are people motivated? They're motivated by directly pursuing their own interests. That's considered to be a realist, a realist world. And we see that very much in the international field where the idea is we can't expect countries to do anything fine or beautiful. Uh, they'll always act in their own self-interests. And we get that message perhaps most recently prof profoundly and succinctly expressed in President Trump's inaugural address. That was just a classic expression of, uh, of national self-interest. But there's now, in the area of human rights, this utopian line of thinking, there's now a great current of writers in human rights who begin, who've begun to really criticise the field of human rights for being uh, taking, for being hopelessly feel-good and taking no real cognizance of uh, the real world. So uh, there's a whole industry of books called The End of Human Rights or The End Times of Human Rights or Let Human Rights Finish. And I just take as one example Stephen Hopgood's recent book, The End Times of Human Rights. And he suggests in this book uh, that human rights serve up, and this is a quote from him, a mixture of false hope and unaccountability. He said, human rights has become a global brand and it's really lost all of its power. But against this, uh, what I want to suggest, in a similar way, I think, to what uh, Trent will be talking about when he talks about sustainability, uh, that it's precisely the utopianism and the malleability of the concept of human rights uh, that gives it real power. And I just want to give one example of this, where the language of human rights, which is often seen as nothing talk, uh, has had real power. And that's in the context of uh, the move for independence of our near neighbour, Timor-Leste. Uh, during the struggle for independence in Timor-Leste between 1975, the Indonesian invasion, and the referendum for independence in 1999, uh, the language of human rights was very, very important by the resistance. But many foreign affairs experts, particularly in Australia, and I'm thinking, for example, of, of, of Gareth Evans, who put this line very, very strongly, uh, said this was to talk about human rights in that context was hopelessly unrealistic. They adopted a very realist position. The idea was, look, get with the program. The invasion by Indonesia of Timor is a fact on the ground. It's just best to accept that. And the only role for, say, Australia uh, was to exercise quiet diplomacy to try to minimise uh, the harshness of the Indonesian rule. And so the realists, and again, Gareth Evans said this on a number of occasions, regarded talk of possible independence as completely irresponsible. And yet what we know is that the weak and dispersed Timorese independence movement in the end successfully deployed a very networked, diffuse politics of hope based on human rights language to eventually achieve independence in 2002. So I offer this as one example of utopian ideas, impossible to realise fully, that can readily be dismissed as nothing much, ending up having quite a lot of power. So the point of my intervention, my provocation, has been simply that nothing, the idea of nothing, no one, uh, no place, has had a really important influence on international law and is in this context uh, a category full of significance and illusion.
Good evening. So I'm the Jerry Higgins Lecturer in Shakespeare Studies at the University of Melbourne. And many of you will probably know Shakespeare wrote about 40 plays, but what less people know is that at least two of those plays have been lost altogether. Uh, we have a reference to what seems to be a sequel to Love's Labour's Lost called Love's Labour's One. And at the end of his career, Shakespeare collaborated with John Fletcher, who went on to be the new primary playwright for the King's Men, on a play called Cardinio, which seems to have been based on a subplot from Don Quixote. It was good enough to be performed at court, uh, survived in manuscript for at least 100 years, and then disappeared altogether. So a lot of my colleagues are wondering, what do we do with this bit of information? How do we make sense of uh, an awareness that Shakespeare wrote at least these two extra plays that we don't have surviving uh, texts for, though we do have references to? And how widespread was this problem throughout his period, as in how many other plays were written during Shakespeare's lifetime that have not survived today, and how do we respond to that? It turns out that quite a lot didn't survive. Uh, the latest estimates suggest that just in London, just the commercial theatres, so the ones that Shakespeare is operating in, working for, we only have about 543 plays that have survived. Against that number, there are at least 750 that we know were lost. We can identify them by name or by reference to them. And really, that 750 is a gross underestimate. If we think about how many plays a company would have needed to perform to make money each year and extrapolate from that a large number of how many plays ought to have been written in the commercial theatres, it's really close to about 2,500 plays that have been lost against the 543 that survive. So whenever we hear Shakespeare scholars generalising about that period and saying this is how the Elizabethan theatre was, this is what they're interested in, um, they're working with a distinct minority. They're generalising from about a sixth of the output of that period. I'd suggest this posits a substantial problem for academics and for theatre historians in particular who want to know more about that period, who want to know what to do with it. We've been quite late to working out what to do with it. Um, if you want to think about the, the, the stages of loss and grieving, uh, for the longest time people were in denial. They, just, they were vaguely aware that there was this massive loss, uh, but scholars in the 19th century in particular usually wanted to conflate that evidence. They would have a title that sounded vaguely like this other play that survives, so they just assumed it's the same thing going by a different name. And that was a really terrible act in a way because it suppressed the, you know, you know, oftentimes the only single piece of evidence for a play's one-time existence. It was completely suppressed because it was brought under the umbrella of another existing play and people just ignored it altogether. So a stage of denial. And it's really only now in the early 2000s that we're moving into a phase of acceptance um, to sort of labour that metaphor of loss a bit more. And we need to start thinking about what to do with this loss, what to do with this absence, this, this nothingness. Classicists have dealt with large gaps in the corpus for a long time. You know, there's a the book of poetry by Aristotle that's lost. There's plenty of works by philosophers. Uh, the Greek uh, poet Sappho, most of her works are lost. Um, some of her poems are only known through fragments that have been quoted in grammatical treaties and all sorts of other interesting places. So they're quite used to this idea of having to work around absence all the time. But Shakespeare scholars have been very slow to pick up that mantle and run with it. In the context of the commercial theatre uh, in London, which is what I'm most interested in, it's a repertory theatre. So the companies weren't just playing one play and running with it until audiences got bored of it. They were performing six days a week. There are four or five companies at least at any given time in London competing for the same playgoers' patronage. So they had to come up with a series of alternative offerings. They always had to have a whole bunch of plays on the go. It's a repertory theatre. It's highly commercial, highly responsive to the offerings of the competitors. So if something worked really well, they would tend to run with it. They'd duplicate those offerings. Um, and they would try and replicate what the, other, what the competition were doing. So in that repertory context, we can make a number of inferences about lost plays and their effects. And there's a couple of metaphors I've been finding quite helpful I want to talk about now briefly. One is from astrophysics, and one is from art history. The astrophysics metaphor I'm thinking of is the way scientists are often cognizant of the existence of a heavenly body well before they catch sight of it for the first time. Something that they know ought to exist by virtue of uh, the effect it exerts on its neighbours. It produces these effects. Uh, even though you can't see the thing itself or locate the thing itself yet, um, this sort of a ripple effect. You're aware of its presence and, and eventually you do hone in on it. And I think something like that can be deduced about the Elizabethan repertory theatre as well. Let me give you two examples. Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, um, we have a few plays that have survived from them. We know vaguely what their repertory looked like, what their house style looked like, but strangely absent is any sense of biblical play. Biblical plays, we might think, are very uh, medieval, very old-fashioned, but they're 
immediate rivals, the Lord Admiral's men, at the Rose Theatre, literally across the road from the Globe Theatre, had about five or six biblical plays in their repertory at the turn of the century, around 1600. This suggests that if the Lord Chamberlain's men were to remain competitive, they would have needed to have had something along those lines to offer the playgoers, to try and attract them back. So we have this gap in that repertory. We think there's a distinct absence, there's a nothingness in terms of biblical plays in Shakespeare's company, but we also know from all the evidence of how these companies competed with each other for money, they couldn't have survived with a complete absence. There must have been something in that repertory. So we don't know what it was, but we know there was something, there's a, there's a gap there, a discernible gap there. Another way I might think about it is how we reread plays that have survived in terms of that effect, in terms of the lost plays. So in 1599, when the Globe Theatre opens, Shakespeare's company are producing his famous Henry V play, uh, a, a classical military play about England's war with France, a very patriotic play. If you've seen uh, Laurence Olivier's film version, you'll see it's almost propagandistic in terms of the English plight against the French, um, but it's very much based on the war theme, English versus French. Across the road at the Rose, something very different happens. At the end of Shakespeare's play, Henry woos Princess Catherine of France and he ends up marrying her. Historically, Henry dies and Catherine remarries a gentleman called Owen Tudor. The Admiral's men choose to dramatise that story instead. So they're very interested in Queen Catherine, not so much in the war, but in the romance. So Henry's wooing of Catherine is the takeaway message from Shakespeare's play for the Elizabethans. If you want to compete with Shakespeare's play, you dramatise her love affair with the second husband instead. So we should probably go back to Shakespeare's play and think about the fact that that wooing scene between Shakespeare's Henry and Catherine is the dead centre of his play. It's the centrepiece that everything stops and we learn about this romance and it's also the culmination of the play. We tend to remember the stirring patriotic speeches and the battles nowadays, but it seems that for early audiences, the thing that was prioritised was instead that romance angle and the legacy angle that should give us pause to stop and think. So that's one way of thinking about the way it exerts that influence on the bodies around us. Another way is to think about lost travel plays. So travel plays that have survived from this period across the repertories of different companies are all pretty much satirical, um, comical, or utopian and fantastical, something like Shakespeare's The Tempest. But the lost plays of this period are all steeped in recent history. There's a play called The New World's Tragedy, The Conquest of the West Indies, The Plantation at Virginia, Amboina, about the Dutch massacre in the New World. Um, so it seems that there was something very different going on at the same time, and we've lost that information. So it's not that all plays are fanciful, it's just that those ones haven't survived. So that brings me to my second metaphor, which is the art history metaphor of negative space. Uh, those of you who've seen that famous illustration of the goblet, but you look at it the second time, it's actually two faces looking at each other, and so once you realise that there's those two things going on simultaneously, it's impossible to see one without the other. Those two black faces looking at each other, silhouettes, make the goblet visible. The visible makes silhouettes visible. So that negative space defines the primary image and back and forth. And I would argue that the same thing happens with the lost plays as well. Once you're aware of the Owen Tudor play, once you're aware of the lost uh, recent historical travel plays, it's impossible to see the surviving corpus without that lens. So these are some of the ideas we're trying to work through to get a sense of what's really going on in this period because I argue that the single most important context for understanding Shakespeare's work is the plays in his own company and rival companies' repertories that he's influencing or responding to. And most of that context has been lost, is a nothing, and we need to start recovering that lost context. reference to after astrophysics and that uh, so much of physics relies on trying to figure out what's there by looking at what's not there. And it seems fitting to stand here and talk about this because uh, for years I've walked past this place and looked at this sculpture here of the hammer thrower. And anyone who's uh, familiar with that sculpture and has been in Melbourne for, for a long time will know that occasionally the hammer goes missing. Some child has been <laughs> hanging off it and snaps off. And so you're left with this hammer thrower perched you know, in mid-air with something missing. And you know that there's something wrong with it because, because the, the, the un, unnatural position of the, of the hammer thrower says something's missing, something should be there. 
And so the whole gesture, the whole movement of the sculpture without the hammer tells you there's something, something there and something's missing. And that's often the case with, with physics and astrophysics, where if you're looking at uh, X-ray binaries or black holes, it's what's missing, it's what's not presenting itself, which gives you some idea of, of what's going on. So when I think about the role of nothing in physics, it's everywhere. It's a bit like the sort of ropes in this, in this building. The, the whole architecture relies on lashing together the somethingness of, of physics and the kinds of claims that are made in physics by, by the absence of things, by counterexamples, by looking for something and not finding it there. Um, now, one place where I think uh, it's, it's uh, crucial to look at, uh, at, at the place of nothing is the distinction between uh, doing something and doing nothing, and the distinction between something and nothing. Um, and that plays out very nicely in, uh, if you look at, say, uh, the work of uh, Isaac Newton. What Isaac Newton did said uh, was that uh, doing nothing is the norm, and doing something is an exception. Um, and that was a huge shift from Aristotle's view, which was doing something was the norm and uh, being at rest was something exceptional, something that you had to, to somehow explain. And I think this has infected a lot of what science does when you're trying to get to the nothing from, from uh, activity. One way to think about nothing is to just consider something like a, a ball in a, in a bowl. If you give the bowl a a bit of a shake or move the ball, the ball goes up and down the edges of the bowl and then it finally settles and does nothing. But you might say, well, it's not quite doing nothing. It's still doing something because it's, it's, still, got, it's still hot, so all the atoms in it are, are jostling around and still moving. So what, what can we do? Well, you just say, let's put it in a refrigerator. Let's, let's cool it down to absolute zero and make sure that none of those particles in the ball are moving. We want to get to nothing. And so you do that and everything's fine. And then you say, well, it's not quite the case because there's still electromagnetic fields in here and, and it might be charged, so it might be moving. So we've got to do something about that. So the physicist says, not a problem, we can do that. We'll just get rid of the fields and it'll all be fine and then we'll have nothing. And what you're left with is something that is doing nothing. And this seems to be like the holy grail, the, the, the philosopher's stone of science. The idea that you've got something perfect. And I'll tell you in what respect it's perfect. It's perfect because you can say two absolute things about it. You can say that you know exactly where it is and you know exactly what it's doing. You know what its position is and you know what its velocity is. You know it's not going anywhere, it's not moving, so its velocity is zero and its position is there at the bottom of the bowl. And you also know its energy. Its energy is zero because it's not moving, it's not being affected by anything. So you can say that. And it doesn't matter whether you measure that energy for a little bit of time or over a long period of time, it's always nothing, it's always zero. So this very act of moving towards nothingness, trying to do whatever you can, the alchemy of making something into nothing, gets you to this position of absolute power because you have absolute knowledge, you know everything there is, you know where it stands, when, why, how, you have everything. And I think that's what Newton was looking for. He was looking for the philosopher's stone, the kind of ultimate answer of this absolute knowledge. But in order to get there, you've got to make something into nothing. Here's where we run into problems. This applies very nicely to billiard balls, to chairs, to glasses of water, but it doesn't apply to the world of subatomic particles. It doesn't apply to atoms, it doesn't apply to electrons. It doesn't apply to the world of quantum mechanics, the microscopic, the nanoscopic, the atomic and the subatomic world. There, the whole system breaks down. Because what Heisenberg told us is, you can't have that absolute. The universe forbids absolute knowledge of position. So if you have something that is absolutely nothing, then you will have that knowledge. But Heisenberg says, no, you can't do that. Which means that if you can measure its position, you'll have no idea of how fast it's moving. If you measure how fast it's moving, you have no idea of where it is. If you know when you're making the measurement for how long, you won't know how much energy it has. If you know what its energy is, you have no idea when it's going to happen. So the world of quantum mechanics introduces this kind of fuzziness, this real dilemma. It means that we can't be sure of anything. So what we thought of as being nothing, no motion, no energy, turns out to be this fuzzy concept. And the wonderful thing about this fuzzy concept is that whenever we encounter nothing, whether it's the vacuum, where it's, whether it's the gap between fundamental particles, what we find is that there's still energy there. 
and the energy comes because we can't be sure of what the energy is. The only way we could be sure is to measure the energy for an infinite amount of time, and since that's not possible, we'll never know. That means that at every point in the universe, everywhere in the universe, there's a huge amount of energy sitting there, and it's the gap between what we can measure, what we can know, and what we can imagine. We can imagine absolute no absolutely nothing, but we can't measure it. And so the entire universe lives in the gap between what is possible, what is measurable, what we can say is certain, and what is imagined, what is possible, what is, what is you know, um, there to, to be conceived of. And that's a what a powerful metaphor. But it gets even better, because this wonderful vacuum is a generous kind. Yeah? Every particle, every subatomic particle that makes you up, every photon, every bit that makes up the universe, has this wonderful exchange with the vacuum. It gives some energy to the vacuum, and the vacuum is very generous and says, yep, fine, I'll have that, and then it gives it back again. And so everything in the universe has this giving and taking from this, this vacuum, this kind of abundance, this gap between what we know and, what, and, and the absolute nothingness. Um, I, I compare it to looking at pixelated noise. You have a picture with lots of pixels, and they're all random. You change one of them, say, from black to white, and you'd never know. You change one from white to, to black, you'd never know. And that's what the, this is what the, the vacuum does, this store of energy, the kind of something that emerges out of nothing, that paradox, allows things to have their identity. Now, where I think this, this becomes very poetic, and I mean this in a literal sense, is that the philosopher Heidegger said, this is what poetry is about, this is what art is about. Think of the sculptor who's sculpting something. What do they do? They put a lump, they add something, and then what do they do? They take it away, and now there's a cavity. And they keep on taking and, 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 and adding in this constant exchange between themselves and the artwork until it's done, and it's never done. The poet likewise uses words, um, uh, finds words, uses them in their poetry, gives them back to the world by reciting them. So I think in the fundamental level, uh, we must think of the universe as not uh, a kind of absolute um, universe that follows rules in which we can be absolutely sure of where everything is and when everything is and how much energy things have, but this wonderfully dynamic and generous state where we can give to the universe and get back from it and have this kind of ongoing dynamic. In that sense, I think that the kind of nothingness that emerges from fundamental physics is a poetic nothing. It's the kind of nothing that we are all familiar with, kinds of things where we never at rest, even when we're most still. Um, and so what I like to think of uh, um, as, as being a sort of guiding metaphor is this idea of, of nothingness in physics as being poetic and therefore uh, as uh, seeing physicists not as just scientists kind of doing calculations, but actually um, artists and, and poets who are using their ideas in, in that way. Thank you. Well, I, I'd like to, um, to move now to, to having a group discussion. But before we do that, I just wanted to say, um, you know, Oscar Wilde said that he loved talking about nothing because it was the only thing he knew something about. And what struck me during those first three presentations, first of all, was not actually to do with nothing at all, but was just the, the love that each of the three speakers showed for their topic and their discipline and their research. And um, I, just, just watching, I mean, not even thinking of myself being a sort of scholar, it just seemed to me to exemplify sort of the passion of scholarship and the interest and the, and the dedication that people put into particular studies. So that to me, really was remarkable about all three of your presentations. But that wasn't the only thing that was remarkable. I mean, what was also absolutely remarkable was how you exemplified in your presentations from unbelievably diverse sort of perspectives. I mean, law, theatre, and quantum mechanics. I mean, one, one could hardly make it up. You, you, you actually did what, what we said we would do on the tin for this evening. I mean, we, we, I mean, we called this nothing's happening. You know, I quite like the idea of, of a happening because it goes back to that kind of 1960s idea of a, of a happening, which is sort of interesting to think about. But, but you all showed, I mean, there was a punchline for your three presentations. It was, you know, nothing happens. Not as a sort of complaint that, you know, a bored teenager would make, but actually as a manifesto. Nothing happens. Nothing 
is a process. So um, with that, without any saying anything further, I'd like to invite the three of you up onto the stage and let's let's open it up to questions. And there is a, a microphone which hopefully uh, well, th that that will work up there with it, and they can pass it around. And I'll I'll um, I'll maybe um, be the roving mic and identify people who want to ask questions. I'm sure there will be lots. If there's not, I will um, ask questions myself. <laughs> yeah. If you could introduce yourself as well, that would be great. Oh, hi. Um, I'm Victoria. Um, I had a question for the second last speaker. Sorry, David. Um, just about... Yeah, I was wondering why some things survived, whereas others didn't. I'm sure there are lots of theories about that, but would be interested in hearing more. Sure. Thank you. Um, so the question is why some things have survived and other things haven't. And there are a number of competing theories for this. Around the turn of the century, booksellers seemed to start thinking there was more money to be made from printing plays. Um, the Bodleian Library at Oxford is uh, largely the bequest of Thomas Bodley, who explicitly said playbooks aren't worth having, they're not worth keeping. So the Oxford you know, Bodleian actually had a copy of the first folio of Shakespeare's works and they sold it because they didn't think it was going to be any use, basically. They've only reacquired it in recent decades. So there was that cultural capital question that plays were undervalued as works of art, as literature. Uh, they were more ephemeral and something for performance rather than something for posterity. So there wasn't that emphasis. There also wasn't the same categorization of authority, of authorship. Uh, so it wasn't really until Ben Johnson self-collects his works in 1616 under the rubric of his name rather than any other topic, and then Shakespeare posthumously has his works collected in 1623. That's when we start seeing the category of authorship emerging and, and, and the value or the, the utility that actually brings together works of an author for, for posterity. So there's a bit of that. There's a bit of the publication and a bit of the value. Um, but the other thing is that paper was very expensive. So when plays were being written, the actors only got their own lines. They didn't get a copy of the entire play. Uh, you didn't make lots of copies because it was hard and expensive and time consuming. And if you did, it would effectively mean that someone else could pirate that play and perform it and make money out of it as well. So it's oddly self-defeating in a sense. You sort of want to contain that play and re retain that play rather than making it widely accessible in the first instance. So there's a cultural thing there too, I think. Plus there's also just a lot of bad luck. There was a, a play collector in the 1670s, 80s, who famously had a, a chef, a cook, who apparently used his priceless collection of manuscript plays to line um, pie tins, and she burnt it all. <laughs> so. <laughs> other, other questions? If, if, if there isn't... A, oh, this one, good. I've got a nasty question stored up in case the <laughs> dries up. Hi, my name's Leo. Um, you guys spoke about, uh, you know, intro... So I'll, I'll use specifics, like uh, terra nullius um, or, or maybe Newtonian physics versus, uh, like, you know, quantum physics, and then, you know, finding out that there are other publications, and then like people going against that. It seems to be like you guys are discussing kind of um, people fearing the unknown and you guys are kind of just telling people that it's okay to accept nothingness, the unknown. Um, and today I think, I think we see some of this, um, you know, white nationalism, reactionary thing in response to globalism and like people's, you know, um, sense of fear from that sense of unknown. So I was wondering, if you guys, you don't have to speak on it in like politic, politics, but I'm just wondering how, you know, this new theory um, was kind of addressed. You know, like let's say Newtonian, when, when quantum physics came up and, you know, Newtonian was the standard model, how do they kind of address that difference, you know, and like get people to feel comfortable with this new, you know, comfort with nothingness or the unknown? Thank you. I might start with that. <clears throat> I think um, if you look at um, scientific theories throughout the ages, um, inevitably what happens is those theories um, inform how people live their lives because they, in a sense, uh, capture if they're, they're popular and they get traction. They give you a kind of model for how you should live your life. Um, and what happens, I think, is that... Um, Scientific theories are like mythology. Um, they're a way of condensing what we think of as 
the right way to live or they caution us against the wrong way to live. Um, so lots of stories that we tell ourselves are to say, look, a good person does this kind of thing. A good a person lives a good life, does this kind of heroic action. And uh, someone uh, who does something evil or selfish um, always meets some horrible end. And I think that scientific theories have a, have a sort of similar kind of function in the world. Um, we latch onto them because they have meaning, because they kind of promise, promise perhaps to give us a sense of security or stability against the kind of fickleness of life. Um, that we realise that, you know, okay, life is tragic, terrible things happen, but maybe there's a part of the world where we can be absolutely sure of this and we can control things and make decisions. Um, now, of course, that proves to be horribly wrong. Um, and so even after Newton, uh, people so soon gave up that, that notion of absolute certainty. So I think, it's, I think people latch on to scientific theories, like quantum mechanics, for example, the whole idea of, of uncertainty or Einstein's notion of relativity has worked its way into, into our language, our political language, about um, everything is relative, nothing is absolute. So I think we latch on to theories um, because they kind of offer us the kind of uh, model for how to live. And the only way to judge uh, whether they are the right model is not a scientific way, but a social way, playing it out, having conversations, discussion, debate, and an open dialogue, and being prepared to be wrong. Um, so I think that's, that's, uh, that's the connection between scientific theories the big stories we tell ourselves, and then the arguments and conversations that you have, have to have democratically to determine how, what is the right way to live with other people, and that, that in turn might give us some insight into how we interpret science. Well, just following on from that point, I, I mean, the only response I'd, I'd perhaps make is that I think what I take from it, and I, I appreciated your sort of overview there, um, is that the categories of something and nothing are really arbitrary. So what we'll deem to be something or nothing and is, is very much in the eye of the beholder. So in the context of terra nullius, um, the Europeans thinking farming, that means white fences and that means, you know, going out and sowing your wheat, not understanding, say, the very sophisticated management of ecology that we know that the um, first Australians were engaged in. So. It's just how, I suppose it's, to summarise, it's a sense of being suspicious of the categories of something and nothing. That's where the message I take away. Just before you, you, you come in, I mean, it just also makes me think that maybe next STEM Pavilion, we could have a separate sort of event on, on ignorance, which seems to me to speak to Leo's question in, a, in terms of the kind of thinking about contemporary political events and the sort of salience of the notion of, of ignorance, but also um, it would be fascinating, but probably t take us till tomorrow for each of you to reflect on the, the importance of ignorance in relation to your own work, which is slightly different from the question of nothing, but speaks directly to your point, Hilary, j just now. Um, I, I, let, let's, let's move on. Maybe we can pick up ignorance later, but there's other questions. Hello, my name's Sam. Um, I'd, I was interested in your um, comments on sort of the first Australians' uh, conception of uh, ownership or, and so on like that. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were in terms of this, the conception of being a custodian and what implications that has uh, implicitly or, or explicitly for something being owned by someone or something or, uh, in any case. Just custodianship, you know, for someone or something and so on. Well, I, I hope I'm responding to what you're saying in, in that I think custodianship, uh, and I'm by no means an expert on Aboriginal approaches to their land, um, but that's something that the law and international law finds very, very hard to compute. I mean, what uh, there is a notion of trust in law and trustees, but they have very, very specific duties. And the whole idea of uh, custodianship is because can that be then passed on? How do you, one of the critical elements of Western European land law is the idea that you have to be able to alienate land, in other words, to sell it for money. And if there's not going to, if there's not a transactional basis, then it's terribly hard to understand. There's a very famous sort of international law decision by the International Court of Justice about 
the Western Sahara and about claims of uh, the Sahrawi people to the Western Sahara, the big dispute, is it Moroccan, is it Mauritanian, who actually owns it, to understand the relationship of the Western Saharan people. And the court said at one point, well, in that context, it's not the people owning the land, it's the land owning the people. And that's terribly hard, I think, in other contexts for people to understand. So it's these categories that we, we realise, especially in international law, how dominant the European vision has been, how it's just imposed an incredibly parochial set of practices and just assumed a universality that's there. Hi. Thanks for your presentations. My name is Pavan Singh. And I was, uh, it struck me as I heard all the presentations that I'm wondering if uh, so far, I'm sure there's more to go, uh, if so far we've been thinking about nothing in spatial terms. And I was wondering what the possibilities might be if we thought about more in temporal terms, especially with relation to international human rights law and also physics. Thanks. Could you say a bit more about what you mean? Um. Um, this idea of nothing having, I mean, we're approaching it through the lens of maybe not having a materiality or not having a certain form or, or a state that it boils down to, right? Like with the example of the bowl. So I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm trying to think through this tension between uh, nothing is a spatial concept mm. versus a temporal concept. For example, if the land was there and no one was doing anything with it, but uh, maybe that's, that's in terms of you can see the materiality of uh, land. Uh, if you see nothing on the land, then you, see, you, you still see something. But in temporal terms, I wonder, uh, how we experience time and how you spoke about uh, about ecology. So I was wondering uh, if there are different registers of nothing uh, which are both spatial and temporal and what the possibilities might be uh, with each of them uh, in terms of thinking about them separately through, I don't know if that makes it, sorry. Is this something you could talk about? I think a physicist would be quite, uh, when it comes to a distinction between, um, I think the physicists don't really see much of a distinction between time and space at that fundamental level. Um, so the kind of fuzziness that comes, that arises from the uncertainty principle um, applies to energy, which is quite abstract, and it applies to motion uh, and to position, but also to time. Um, which means that um, physicists are quite egalitarian when it comes to, to assigning this kind of fuzziness to the, to the universe at the fundamental level. So, so you could say that uh, at, there really isn't time, and if there is, then it's, it's, kind of, it's under the sort of veil of this uncertainty principle, and therefore we shouldn't take it as seriously as we, unfortunately, as ordinary human beings living at this dimension and this scale, have to take time, but um, but in some ways, uh, time's just an illusion. It just emerges, like your, you know, the the when you look at a a ball, a macroscopic ball, and it's not moving, then um, the it's just an illusion that it's not moving. In fact, it's an illusion that it's made out of matter. It's just actually vibrations in a field. Um, so, so I think time is illusory in 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 physics. Just to come at that from a slightly different angle, time is incredibly important for performance, obviously. Uh, and if you pick up a copy of the Oxford edition of Hamlet, that play text is not a play. It's, it's a prompt for a play. The play is actually the dynamic live interaction of bodies in space and time. And so in a sense, um, all of those early modern plays are lost because we don't have those performances. Uh, the first Shakespeare play said to have been performed outside of England, outside of Europe, is Hamlet which was performed on a ship called the Red Dragon off the coast of Africa in 1607. But it's highly debated as to what that performance actually entailed. It's highly unlikely that every member of the cast and crew there actually had a printed copy of the text, but they all seem to have known Shakespeare's play enough to be able to bring something together. So that play is lost. There's a temporal moment there that's incredibly important, right? Um, so something is going on there that's quite interesting too, I think. 
actually hearing those very learned responses makes me, I just realise, I think that the law doesn't deal very well. Well, I wasn't dealing very well with your question uh, with its subtleties. And in international law, often these things, I, I suddenly realise that what we search for or what we teach our students is there's this whole idea of the critical moment. So when you decide what's going on, you have to find, and of course, that's illusory too, what is the critical moment? And then you find courts just saying it was 1622 at four o'clock. That was the critical moment. So there's, there's a sense, I suppose, in law, um, a lot of prominence is given to time, but it's always a fixed point and it doesn't deal well at all uh, with that uh, more fluid sense of time. I mean, it's, it's, it's also the case, isn't it, and I'll, I'll maybe talk about it briefly later, that, that you often only become conscious of time when you're bored. You, know, you might be bored by the questions now and look at your watch. So, you know, the, the, and, and the classic example um, of this is, the, is, is Frank Kermode's brilliant book, The Sense of an Ending, where he meant to, makes a distinction between the, the interval of time between tick and talk. I mean, when, when a clock's ticking, it's actually not making any different noises, but the human ear makes it go into tick and talk. And, and the distinction, the, the time between tick and talk is meaningful. You're waiting for the talk. But the time between talk and tick is nothing. It's dead, empty, chronos. You haven't imposed any meaning on it. So just, it just in terms of thinking about time and nothing, that's one thing that occurred to me. Um, but we're not getting bored, so we're going to take a couple more questions, I think, before we break. So. Hello, my name's Leah. Um, I was wondering if anyone on the panel had ever attempted as part of, say, Japanese meditation where they say to you, close your eyes and think of nothing. And I found it more or less impossible. It always seemed to be, even if it seemed like nothing, it was something. Have any of you ever tried it or achieved it? Great question. Tried it, never achieved it. <laughs> Because the other part of that instruction is usually to focus on your breathing. And once you do that, you can no longer do it automatically. It always becomes conscious effort to continue breathing, doesn't it? <laughs> so no, I've not had any success. <laughs> I mean, I, I try all the time because, you know, when you, when you think about what's the cure for insomnia, you know, it's to empty your mind. And, of course, the second that you do, every single thing, things that you safely push to the boundaries just come bouncing right back in. So I... Yeah, it's not possible. Uh, no, not, not possible for me. <laughs> uh, the only place I've found uh, nothing is in students' essays very often. <laughs> um, no, and I, I'm being facetious, but sometimes there is nothing. There's a kind of simplicity uh, in... Um, uh, I find... When I find... If I'm finding nothing, it's usually in poetry, when I'm sort of reading poetry, because it's the kind of gaps that really make all the difference. Uh, or just like music, it's the kind of intervals that the nothingness kind of makes makes things appear. So, um, so I think if if I, I mean I would imagine that if, if that kind of meditation is possible, it's because of this juxtaposition between the nothingness and the and the rest of your life. Should take one more question before we do something different. Yes, I'll bring the bring it over. Thanks. I'm uh, John. Sorry, I missed the start, but um, I'm interested in poetry and also physics, so it's very interesting stuff. Um, do you think uh, infinity or everything is kind of linked to nothingness rather than something being something or nothing? Is it nothing or everything? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, um, I don't know the answer to that because yeah, I simply don't know the answer to that. Yep, that's all I can say. <laughs> You're going to say nothing. Um, I'm going to. Um, great, great question. Maybe we could pick up on a turn or two later. But um, we're going to change tack now, and I'm going to ask Jesse to introduce what's going to happen next. Thank you. Um, thank you to everyone that we've had speak this morning, uh, this morning just then. Um, and thank you so much, Craig. Um, you might have noticed just um, over to that side of the stage, we've got a, a configuration of objects and some of them are looking like parts of the building, but they're actually a commissioned artwork by Robbie Avenham. Um, he is a, an Australian sound artist who for the last 25 years has built up a, an international reputation um, as, as a kind of innovator in the area of sound. Um, and 
for the last little while, he's been developing these um, robotic percussive machines um, that work without an instrument player. So music from nothing. And I'll let him turn it on and you can have a look at it during the break. And we're going to, uh, we're going to reconvene at 7 o'clock for the second set of presentations and then, and then there will be more discussion. There's also food over there. Um, so come back at 7 and we'll be, take, take it to the next stage. Let me thank again Morris, David and Hilary for giving up their time. <laughs>